If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. This is Back in America. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you again for your uh, support and your reviews. I'm with Dennis Devin, whom I met at a workshop on masculinity here in Philadelphia. Dennis, do, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Sure. My name is Dennis Devine. I'm 46 years old. I live here in Fishtown, Philadelphia. Grew up in Long Island, New York, and uh, lived out about eight years in California and have been living here in Philadelphia for 11 years. I'm a journalist by background, although I no longer work as a journalist. I have two sons, ages 8 and 6, and a lovely wife. What is it like to be Dennis today? Hmm. Uh, to be Dennis today is to be extremely engaged and involved in the neighborhood in a lot of different ways. To be a very active parent uh and partner you know uh for my wife but a parent uh in the lives of my sons um it's to struggle with uh you know thinking globally acting locally uh in the light of what i see as like envir global environmental and uh global political crises uh, and and then how to reconcile that with you know my my evolving understanding of that with how that parlays into the kinds of parenting and modeling I want to do for my sons. Hmm. That brings me to to this workshop where we met. What were you doing there? I had found out about Toby Frazier, one of the co-organizers, and his work, which used to be called Men Can, and Men Can uh, Prevent Domestic Violence, or Stop Domestic Violence, I think. Um, about two years ago, and I was really interested. And also, it's right, around, you know, it's it's right in the neighborhood. And uh, earlier in my life, I was involved in some men's anti-sexist work and man men's anti-rape work. And the work has never been; those issues have never been far from my thoughts and beliefs, but they have been far from my active day-to-day -day life. So when I found Toby and his work. Uh, I was interested, and it I thought it would uh, fit neatly into something else I'm involved in, which is, for the last six years, I've organized a monthly meetup for dads in the neighborhood, uh, a large group, like 350 guys on my mailing list, but we get about 40 to 50 guys out on the first Monday night of the month at a different bar in the neighborhood, defined largely, uh, and about once or twice a year, I do I invite people who are involved in local um good stuff. I invited Toby to talk to uh, you know about his work uh about masculinity, about uh enlisting men in the effort to to combat uh domestic violence. Hit it off with him. He told me about some of the work that you know he's doing about uh exploring toxic masculinity and ways to uh be an upstander and intervener. And I said, you know, that's a good next step for my involvement, and I want to learn more. So when we met, that was the first one of those kinds of things I'd been to there, and I've since been to one more. And I hope to be more involved in, in that work 
over at Lutheran Settlement House and in the neighborhood. So that's, I mean, in my opinion, this is pretty untraditional for a man to think about those topics. Yeah. Right? Uh, and there are a lot of questions there. Before we dive into it, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. You talk about your involvement at college around the rape issues. Yeah. Why was it something of interest to you? Uh, one of my first girlfriends in college opened up to me about uh, being the victim and survivor of childhood sexual abuse and some of the ways that that traumatized her. And uh, and it was the first time I'd ever heard anything like that. How old were you? Uh, 18. Mm-hmm. So I was blown away. Uh, and and had also developed you know some some good friendships intense friendships uh oh, i guess i was 19 sorry uh so at college and including uh some women and i i, I talked to some women friends uh like ab- about it and discovered how rampant it was it was like every woman i ended up talking to her, confiding in her, working it through with, uh, also had the same experience. Right. It was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. It forever blew open the myth of what American domestic life is like. Uh, and, yeah, it, it, that, that dynamic has, has remained unchanged. Um, if you uh, present as someone who is open to understanding the the pandemic effects of toxic, toxic masculinity and childhood sexual sexual abuse in this country you will hear more stories mm-hmm. people are holding on to trauma and stories and we'll share with you if you are a trusted you know listener and right. my god that that's what did it masculinity toxic masculinity uh, how were you impacted yourself as you grew up by the model of uh, what a man should be? So I'm the youngest of 10 children. Uh, My father was a great guy. Passed away when I was 16. Um, And I have uh, four older brothers. And I have a pretty rough and tumble house. Not in a, well, I mean, by many standards, not an abusive one, although there was physical violence. But between... Uh, parents and me, you know, a lot of discipline, uh, but also, uh, a lot, you know, to my brothers and older sisters and me. So it was a rough and tumble kind of house. I didn't resent it or anything like that. Uh, I, I got in fights as a kid, sometimes like forced into fighting by social pressure, you know, like, oh, that kid said something about you. And like, you gotta stand up for yourself, play football on the football team. Strangely enough. To this day, one of the best things that ever happened to me was I was the victim of a, 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 a violent crime. I got beat up by a large gang, about 50 uh, kids, picked out in a uh, semi-random situation where they were after one of my friends who I didn't know they had this whole backstory with. They couldn't get him, and they just isolated and found me and went and beat the crap out of me, right? Like, when and where was that? I was outside of the Taco Bell in my hometown uh, when I was 16, and 
it was terrible. One of the really interesting things about it was it. I had friends who hid instead of coming to my my aid. They uh, they struggled with it far more than I did. Mm-hmm. What do you I mean s- they struggled with sure. it? Sure, they they, 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 they struggled with their masculinity. Oh. They struggled with what they should. They felt they should have done versus what they did. Right. Uh-huh. These were friends of mine who always imagined tough talk. Hey, I'd I'd be you know at your side, but faced with overwhelming numbers. If they had come out, they they'd reveal, they would have also gotten their asses kicked. So I didn't blame them for that, but they couldn't get over it. So what happened was my friends decided to avenge me, right? And do exactly to some of the kids they identified in the crowd that beat me up what had happened to me. I wanted no part of that. Mm-hmm. I said... If you drop me in front of the, these guys one on one, I would love to fight them and kick their ass and get my revenge. Right. But you guys going and picking on them one on one is not for me. That's for you. That schism between me and them, the victim slash survivor of what happened, and these guys who felt their manhood challenged by failing to rise to like the 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 hero or their savior moment. And what I wanted and what they wanted really helped start a process of questioning what I understood as a male perspective about manhood. But the other key part, <laughs> there were two assistant principals at my school. Yeah. One was a terrible, terrible man, hopefully, like a, a disciplinarian. Uh, a, and he happened to be um, away when I got into a fight. And got sent to the principal's office. The other guy was this incredible guy, Peter Salito, uh, who was listening and talking and basically acted as my free therapist for throughout my, my high school years. Talking with him for hours sometimes after school in his office, just like talking through things, started me on a path towards understanding that, like, wow, I wasn't trained to talk or listen growing up. Mm-hmm. And that is really what started me with empathy and started me with, like, really things that fundamentally shook up my understanding of what being a man is. That That's super interesting, right? Because, yes, we define what a man should be as being strong, hiding his emotion, uh you know, taking care of other, being independent. You were raised like that, like most of us, right? Uh, that event just helped you to realize that. But did you put words on it at the time? Did you really understand what was happening with no, that? Only in retrospect. Actually, I realized it by the time I had to write a college essay. Oh, okay. First time I did introspective writing. So maybe four years later, all right? Yeah, three, but two, maybe about two years okay. later. By that time, I, I, and Mr. Salito, the assistant principal, helped guide me towards this kind of understanding. So that guy already understood that that traditional model of what a man is. Yeah, and he was modeling it, modeling it so well okay. as empathetic, as listening, as talking, as just really kind. He was awesome. Is but what a, what a difference maker he was for me. So that's one of the men you look up to today. Yeah, as a model. Haven't been in touch with him in 
decades. That's interesting. That's interesting. So, okay, uh, you understood all that, and now let's forward to uh, 2019, or maybe before, because you started organizing those group five years ago, right? Uh, those men's group. Yeah. Uh, sort of. Okay, it's a group of guys, you know, bonding together, having beer together. That doesn't look very. Uh, you know, progressive in style. You're absolutely right. So, and it grew out of when I was on paternity leave before I shifted to full time uh, uh, taking care of or part time uh, taking care of my my boys. I uh, I was on paternity leave and took my sons to this play group where there's like moms and there was nannies, but there was also a couple of dads. Not as not nearly as many, but a couple of guys. And I just naturally gravitated towards talking to them. And uh, one time, just maybe apocryphal, but this is how I remember it. We were holding on to, like, water bottles or sippy cups or juice bottles or whatever it was. And I'm like, these should be beers, right? <laughs> and so we made some plans to uh, to meet up for drinks, just like five of us. And it kind of grew out of that. Now, yeah, you're right. There's nothing largely progressive about that. But as I've come to be involved in other community building organizing i've started to realize what a what a what a gem this dad's night is and i'm not the only one this has actually been shared with me by a lot of dads Mm -hmm. i created a space for dads to get together some with like you know older kids some with brand new newborns to go out, you're right, and it's unthreatening. It's not like going out for a cause. Hey, I'm going out to have a beer with the guys. But because of that unthreatening nature, because it's not challenging anything, guys will come out and uh, and they'll get into these really important conversations about parenthood, about supporting each other. We don't ever call it that, but that's what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. And it reaches guys who would never come out to a toxic masculinity workshop. But they're achieving some of the same result. They're coming out. They're talking about their role as caregiver, as parent, their struggles, you know, their marital issues, whatever, uh, in a in a relatively safe space, right? I call it my soft organizing, right? My sneaky organizing, mm-hmm. because it gets guys that don't come to the other kinds of things that I advertise and are involved in, but they come out, and uh, and a lot of good has come out of that. Not just like, I, you know, there's networking that happens and all that, but there's just like s- social bonding in in really important ways for dads, especially a lot of, you know, very involved parents and many primary caregivers. That would not happen the same way if uh, women were part of the group. Definitely not. No, definitely not. It's interesting. Now, uh, I a couple of years ago, I became acquaintances with uh, a transgender uh, parent uh, in the neighborhood, and I really hoped that he would come, right? I, I tried to extend an, uh, an invitation because I've come to realize, yeah, I don't want to be exclusionary, right? And so for me, I've moved to like if you if you define yourself in any way that involves the word dad, mm-hmm. yeah, you should come. Mm-hmm. I'm not checking anybody's genitals, right? Like, and so there are a couple of transgender parents who, if I have my way and I succeed in making it, you know, something that interests them, they'll they'll be joining us. 
my hope, but not yet. I haven't had that. So in this country, and I think throughout the world, um, and that has been going on forever, people have been talking about the men crisis, masculinity crisis. Uh, and, 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 you know, supporting that are the number of suicides among men, uh, you know, uh, school dropout, all the things. And, and that is often put in perspective uh, with the uh, feminist movement. And, you know, when you start to talk about the, woman, uh, the men's crisis, people will be tempted to blame the women for that. So what's your take on it? Oh, I think it's the cultural transmission we received that so poorly prepared most men my age and, and you know, even a decade or two younger um, for the evolving world that has, has come to be. You know, the values and the ridiculous um, stereotypes we, we saw on culture and TV and movies and the literature we read. Uh, presented us with one idea about what being a man meant, and um, that isn't what being a man is and and should be, and is evolving towards right. Um, and so, <sighs> blaming women um, for the the men's crisis. And I'm sure in your group, you have a lot of men that come and that vent against oh, yeah. their wife and who are in the middle sure. of a you know. Yep. And that's totally normal, natural, and correct in the scope of, uh, you know, everything. It's the extrapolation of, like, it's not my wife, it's women, mm-hmm. you know. It's not, you know, it's, uh, that's the problem, right? That's where the, uh, I think, the, the sexism really takes hold. It's, uh, you know, this is not a reflection on my own wife. Uh, but if you're railing about, like, you know, my wife really has trouble parallel parking and can't drive, mm. that's a legitimate firsthand observation someone can make, right? Right. It's when you say, and that means women can't drive as well. You know, that's BS, right? So, um, yeah. Do you think the current government uh, is having an impact on that oh, masculinity God. crisis? It's making it so much worse. Everything about November 2016 was a step backwards for our country and the world. And in that one way, I mean, not only in that way, in the rural-urban uh, schism, in the, uh, in the uh, you know, obviously the partisan divide, in uh, the anti-elite, anti-education, so, and also the racism, you know, like in all those ways. But on the gender front, November 2016 was a catastrophe for our, our world and country because um, no matter how many women line up behind Trump and Trumpism, and there are, you can't deny that, right? Especially a lot of white women were instrumental in voting into Trumpism. Uh, you, you, can't, um, you can't separate his appeal from the many explicitly sexist rape culture uh, aspects to his personality, his personal personality, mm-hmm. the cult of personality built around him, and and the message that sends to everyone 
including people who hate Trump. Mm -hmm. There is no parent I know who thinks about politics and and parenthood and has sons and or daughters that is not struggling with this idea of the worst possible role model right getting the most possible attention and redefining the boundaries of what's permissible and what's successful in our culture it's horrifying right interesting now how does your wife uh looks at you in this you know grand scheme of organizing men's group and being at home and taking care of your kids how do you think she looks yeah, at yeah. you <laughs> so i'm going to i'm going to speak where everything i know she's said right right and can't go past that mm -hmm. she's very supportive of my decision to stay home with the kids in fact she was encouraging of it she thinks that it definitely played a positive role in my boy's development, uh, in my own development, in my being an equal uh, partner in raising the children and maintaining the house and our community organizing life. Um, and she's extremely supportive of the dad's night stuff. I mean, uh, has helped keep me going when I've been like, I don't want to keep doing this. She's, she's encouraging it. Uh, she, um, yeah, I think generally very, very supportive. She also is a feminist and, uh, I mean, we, we met at college, uh, partially like through our organizing work when she was a freshman in college and I was a senior and we were both involved in campus organizing, including anti-sexist work. Interesting. So... Uh, Before uh, we started the interview, you were telling me uh, about your involvement in um, climate action mm. and, and you know, sensibilizing uh, people around uh, climate change. Do you think that what you do with masculinity uh, has any link to, um, to climate change or to climate fight? Let, let me tell you what, what, what I'm going at. You know, I, I was interviewing someone who was saying that Toxic masculinity had a role in the way people behave as they destroy the planet by driving, you know, you know, uh, four by four, you know, huge truck and just burning fuel. And sure, uh, I do believe that the fossil fuel industries have successfully capitalized on toxic masculinity as a marketing strategy. It's a very successful one. Strength, uh, as exhibited in the largest pickup truck you can drive, right? The, uh, what do they call those? The pickups that are retrofitted to burn coal, mm. right? That's like one of wow. the ultimate, one of the really? ultimate expressions of that. Yeah, monster pickups that you can retrofit to burn coal as the ultimate FU to all you like mm. liberal like uh you know feminist this is a very successful marketing strategy for fox news for the right for fossil fuel industries uh to play upon the fears of men white men uh who have patriarchal power and legacy slipping away from them 
as the demographics change, as justice uh, starts to rebalance the scales, as more and more historically oppressed peoples rise up and claim their fairer share Mm -hmm. of things, that is a direct threat. There is a limited pie. Men do have to relinquish power and control they've become accustomed to, right? The patriarchy worked for a lot of white men for a long time. And so, absolutely, that is a very successful marketing strategy that has, in my opinion, doomed us all. What do you do today to prepare your kids and maybe people around you to the new world that's, you know, coming upon us? Uh, You know, our world is changing. Some people think it is collapsing. We have a duty as parents to prepare. Do you do anything along those lines? Okay. I'm... You, you can't see this in audio. I am. I am. Sort of my my body felt a wave of like, uh, just disgust, fear, shame, all the negative emotions come swirling into me from that question. Because the answer is not enough. Now I think I'm pretty in in very large company in that answer, right? But the definite answer is not enough. I'd like to believe this is a transition stage to where I figure out the right stance, but I struggle with this, and this is no exaggeration, every single day. And you're not alone. So, I model a lot of behaviors and teach my kids a lot about traditional ways we thought it was good to be an environmentalist, right? Mm. Good for the planet. We compost, we recycle, we pick up trash, we com- participate in community cleanups, we, uh, but that's not nearly enough. We also educate our children all the time about sea level rise. That was the, that's the one closest uh, to my background and education and heart. Uh, I used to and involved my kids in this, actually. There's a group called Climate Dads, which I'm a little bit involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, there was a stickering campaign, which I, me and my boys both participated in, where I would put stickers that said, this place will be water. Right. And we would put that where the flood map show will be inundated, including here in Fishtown. So I would hit a lot of spots that are, like, popular and, like, you know, by the park and by, you know, the casino and all these places that people would see them. My boys would help me put them up there. Like, and, and I'd be explaining to them, like, this place will be water. These brand-new, not-yet-finished developments, huge houses going up on the riverfront, they'll be underwater, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, rec- helping them understand that. Now, I am really struggling with this question because I am 100% convinced that the traditional ways that we thought it was okay to be a good environmentalist are no longer uh, valid. They're no longer mm-hmm. enough, not nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, we, we, we gave up our car a year ago. That was really? a big, yeah, we, we were car free in this house. Uh, that was a big issue with that. It is. Yeah. yeah. So we went in fully country, transit, yeah. uh, cargo bike, their bicycles. We walk a lot. We try to, I mean, we, we really take it seriously. 
Right now, the, the, it's starting to get cold in this because I turned the heater off. And it, yeah. we keep a cold house generally uh, so the kids get used to that. And we keep a hot house because we don't try not to run the air conditioning too much. So there's ways it affects our life. We're vegetarian, uh, pescatarian for the most part. But, like, it, it infiltrates kind of everything, right? But the thing is, um, I sometimes struggle with the idea that I should either be teaching them about doomsday prep Mm-hmm. A prepper. I'm not that, mm-hmm. but I've really thought about it. Uh, and sometimes, in my most despondent moments, which I have, uh, I sometimes fear that the nihilistic, selfish, grab everything you can, hedonistic kind of uh, perspective that is dominated on the right side of the political sphere and has fueled a whole lot of. Uh, one percent capitalist money grabbing live for today forget about the future screw everybody else they might have been right all along with because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy all right they've been able to live for today and they've screwed the rest of us uh we're getting to the end of this interview now if we think back about the the beginning of this interview with masculinity what would you tell men uh, about masculinity and about coming to term with uh, the traditional images of yeah. what a man is? We were all sold the lie that holding in our feelings and not sharing them and not talking about them uh, equated with manhood. And um, it may look good on screen. It may look good for John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and the you know, the archetypes we grew up with, but um, you wouldn't want to live with those guys. Hmm. Maybe you'd want them in the final shootout, but that's not our lives, right? We're, we're, we're negotiating partnerships in our households, in our child raising. We're negotiating, like, you know, community living and cooperation, and that depends on being aware of your own feelings, your own thoughts, and sharing them. And so after some uncomfortable transition and growth, it's all upside. It's all upside. Is there any books you would uh, recommend? I tried thinking about this. I really haven't relied much on no. on, on okay. books. All right. And because this is back in America, what is an American to you? Right. Right now, an American is... Primarily, a entitled recipient of the greatest good fortune of timing of geopolitical expansion and colonialism and, and technological innovation at exactly the right time to reap all these rewards that have sustained America's dominance for the last 150 years. We sit atop the global power structure. And yet we are a child playing with a gun. And uh, it is a responsibility we have because of our outside share of the world economy and global political influence to understand, like, how we got here and also, like, how much we have to share to get out of here. And obviously we need to change the effing present as soon as possible Dennis thank you so much that was a fascinating discussion thank you sure my pleasure thank you